0: In Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem before His death and resurrection, He teaches about marriage, humility, and what we lack to become perfect. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Gospel Doctrine, this week's lesson, Matthew 19-20, through Mark 10, and Luke chapter 18. Uh, this is number 19 in our New Testament series, What Lack I Yet. If this is the first time joining the show, uh, please know you can contact me by emailing gt at If you have any questions, please send them there. Love to hear from you. Uh, this week's question comes from Charlie. The first thing she asks is, From last week's lesson, uh, in Luke chapter 17, Jesus tells the story of an unprofitable servant. And she asks, well, the story is that a man comes in from, uh, the servant comes in from working the fields, and the man says, are you going to feed this servant because he's been working all day? No, you're going to have the servant feed you and perform his duties to you, and then he's going to sit down and feed himself, which is the way servitude worked at that time. A servant had to do his job. And and Jesus says, Are, "Is that servant therefore to be thanked because he fulfilled his duties? No, he he did the minimum." And uh, what Charlie asked was, "Why did why did uh, Jesus address the choice of how to deal with the servant? The point could have been made that we we're unprofitable servants without that." Um, obviously, I don't know what was in Jesus's mind. My my personal take on this story is that it was Jesus's way of teaching the same principles that were taught to the. Book of Mormon audience so eloquently in the in King Benjamin's address, and so if we want to learn the same lesson, uh, and I and I've looked at both of these. First of all, one way to do it is to read this in another translation because it's not exactly clear what he means. But secondly, learn how exactly um, in Jesus's time these spirit these uh, servants sorry would have been expected to act. And so what Jesus is saying is uh, a servant acting and fulfilling the bare minimum of his duties is not going above and beyond. He, he's an unprofitable servant because he still requires the, his living. He requires all of the things that go into being a servant. So the way King Benjamin expressed it was to say, you, you think that you're earning some credit with God because you thank him or you obey the commandments for what he's blessed you. But as soon as you do that, he's already given you everything. As soon as you do that, he blesses you again. You never catch up, no matter how righteous you are, in what you give God in relation to what He has given you. So this is the, this is the idea that Jesus is expressing, is that we, we cannot catch up to God. We think that we're going above and beyond, but truly we are always beholden to God. And so the attitude that we should have toward God is not one of, okay, God, time for you to bless me and come through for me. It should always be one of God, I still owe you and I'm grateful to you. So as long as we have this proper attitude, which was so important to Jesus, as long as we have this attitude of, gra- of gratitude towards God and humility towards God, that will cause us to make the choices that will eventually lead us to Jesus and allow God to pull us toward him. God doesn't care about what we can do for him as much as whether we're willing to submit ourselves to his will. That will lead us into all of the actions the attitudes that we have will lead us into all the actions that are important. Thank you for that question, Charlie. So, as I said, please send me your questions, gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Also, we appreciate your shares on Facebook, your five star reviews on Facebook and iTunes, and um, any way in which you share the podcast by telling people about it, by helping them learn how to subscribe. One of the biggest obstacles for some people is they've never listened to a podcast before, and so they what they want is a link, and they don't realize that they probably already have the ability to subscribe to a podcast. And so when people are talking to me in, uh, in, in real life, then I say, yeah, if you want to subscribe, let me see your smartphone. And I just put it in for them um, and, and they love it. So I need your help to get the word out about the podcast. And I hope that uh, if you're enjoying it, I hope that you're willing to do that. So this lesson is about Jesus's final road trip to Jerusalem. We discussed Luke's version of this. Uh, a little earlier. So the final teachings are found in Luke 17, but the chapters, Luke chapters 12 through 17, already discussed Jesus's journey. And now we're discussing this journey as found in Mark and Matthew. Um, but it's kind of sad for me. It Obviously, we approach the chapters, the lessons that are coming up with mixed feelings, because First of all, uh, it's where some of the most wonderful and amazing episodes in Jesus' life occur. And secondly, it means that uh, our, our brief time of studying the life of Jesus in Sunday school is coming to an end. And obviously we're free to go back and study the Gospels anytime we want, but this will mark the end of our time studying them together. And life being what it is, we probably won't find as much time if we're, if, you know, if you're like I am, we probably won't find as much time to study the Gospels as we have over the last few months, and as we will over the next month. And so I'm already uh, feeling a little bit of sadness that this is coming to an end because I have loved so much spending this time with my Savior, and I've I've felt so much closer to Him as I weekly and daily dive into the Gospels and read his words and see how he treated people in his mortal ministry. Um, But I'm very grateful for the opportunity. So again, the chapters are Matthew 19 and 20, Mark 10, Luke 18. As we go through these chapters, you'll see that they're all very similar. In fact, they're almost identical. Um, Just about everything that occurs in one occurs in the others. There's a couple of examples, small parables at the end that occur only in Luke. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about um, which particular passage I'm reading. You can read any of these and get the lessons from them and get the get the scriptures from them. But the first thing Jesus talks about is the Pharisees come to him and they say, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Now, this question comes from the idea that Moses taught in the law of Moses, if you want to put away your wife, give, give her a writ of divorcement. And Jesus exposes the idea. He says, look, Moses told you, he verily did say, that Moses told you, you could, if you wanted to put away your wife, give her rid of divorcement. But from the beginning, it wasn't so. In fact, the law of God is, and so Jesus, Jesus kind, of, kind of explains that there is a difference between the higher law, and he says we're living under a lesser law right now, believe it or not, things weren't always this way. The higher law is that whatsoever God hath joined, let not man put asunder and what God joined was, a man and a woman shall be one flesh. Now, if you think of the idea of divorcing your hand, you, you are one flesh with your hand. You're one flesh with your foot. And let's say you have some problems with your hand. You have an infection in your hand where it's giving you a lot of pain. It is your last resort to cut off your hand. So that's what Jesus is trying to say. That's that, that's why the language of one flesh is used. It should be that serious. It should be absolutely the last resort. Um, and the way modern prophets have put it is, it is the circumstances are extremely rare in which is, is, it is a greater evil to continue a marriage than it is to end a marriage. And so the point is um, what Jesus says was Whosoever shall put away his wife for a cause other than fornication is committing adultery. So if your partner has stepped outside the marriage covenant, that's one thing. He's saying even under the higher law, then that they've broken the covenant, the covenant no longer exists. If you choose to then stop trying, uh, you're well within your rights. Short of that, then you, you really are within a lesser law. Incidentally, we live in such a time now where we're living in a time of a lesser marriage law where uh, people get divorced for all kinds of reasons which are um, all the way from I just don't feel happy and fulfilled to full-on abuse or adultery or addiction. And even then there are people who make it work and who change their, the, the direction of their marriage around. Um, as a single man myself, I, I, I won't say too much about this other than to say it's obvious what Jesus is teaching. Uh, He's telling the Pharisees of his time, and modern prophets have told the members of the church of our time, that we need to take marriage more seriously. And each of these decisions is so fraught with emotion and with, with pain and heartache that anyone looking from the outside should refrain from judging. Nevertheless, if there's any indication that we can take the marriage covenant more seriously we should do so. And we should intervene early in our own marriages before they reach the point where uh, there's a major breach of the covenant. But we should we should try to make them, instead of, this is one of the advantages of a, of a temple marriage. Instead of letting the marriage disintegrate and thinking, well, till death do us part, we recognize I'm going to be with this person forever. I should change my attitude. And instead of thinking, well, forget him, he's made me unhappy today, or forget her, she's she's not meeting my needs. We say, what What can I do so that I'm happy, so that I want to be in this, in this marriage forever? Uh, I don't right now want to be in this marriage the way it is forever. And so what can I do to fix it? I'm gonna act today to fix it because death is not a release for me. God gave us, I've heard this saying before, and I believe it's true, God gives us relationships um, or let me put it another way. The world pays us in money, but God pays us in relationships. Uh, and I believe that's a true principle. And obviously marriage is the most important relationship of our lives. And so um, we sh- we should treat that as the payment from God that it is, and it's precious. And it's only worth as much as we put into it. It can be so difficult. Um, I try to be very, very understanding about someone else's marriage we never know what's going on behind closed doors Um, so it's so difficult to get it right but it's so important and sometimes it's easy for some people that's not their challenge but for those for whom it is uh, they deserve all of our help all of our prayers and all of our sympathy so that's what jesus is expressing is uh, there is a higher law that we can aspire to than simply a, a divorce of convenience the next thing that happens to Jesus is that his disciples are preventing children from reaching him. So he's teaching at some point. And uh, there are people who want to bring, as was the custom of the time, they want to bring children unto Jesus. So they would. Uh, this was common for parents to bring their young children. And the fact that they brought their children means that they were likely infants or very young or toddlers. Um, and in fact, in, in Luke, he uses the word for young young children or infants, so they're following a well-known custom, which is to bring their children unto a rabbi and have the rabbi bless them. Even though this wasn't a synagogue, uh, this likely happened out of doors. But Jesus did, on his road trip, teach in synagogues, so this could have been anywhere. The question that I ask myself is, why did the disciples interfere? And this is a question I'm not going to. I may say a few more things about it, but I won't answer completely. I invite your emails on this topic. Uh, if you have an idea as to why the disciples interfered, one idea I have is that um, they're implying by by refusing to allow the parents to come forth. They're saying you, Jesus is not just any rabbi; he doesn't do these mundane tasks of blessing children. But I don't I don't know. Uh, I think this is a this would be a profitable area to ask ourselves a few questions. Why would the disciples interfere with Jesus blessing these little children? In any case, it earned rare displeasure from Jesus. So Jesus was, we, we rarely read that Jesus was upset, but he rebuked his disciples. So a few things upset Jesus, but the temple being used as a marketplace was one of them. Uh, the, the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees, that was another one. Hypocrisy of all forms. Upset Jesus and and caused him to use very strong language. And here's the third one: is people refusing to let children come unto him. So we can learn a few lessons from this uh, from this episode. Um, first of all, the parents cared enough about Jesus, they loved Jesus enough, and trusted him enough that they wanted to bring his, their children to him. Uh, and and we can see in this an attitude that we should emulate. Not only should we come unto Jesus. But if there are innocents in our care, we should lead them to Jesus as well. And Jesus welcomed this. He the more innocent that someone was, the more appropriate it was that they come unto him. He even said, Of oh, such is the kingdom of heaven. Um and, and, and as we'll learn, and actually I'll come back to this because we're going to talk a little bit more about what it means to be mature uh, as we talk about the next episode. So These two episodes are tied together, in my opinion. And the other thing that's clear is that Jesus loved these little children. He said, please, always, let them from now on, whatever happens, let little children come unto me, because of such is the kingdom of heaven. It was so clear how he felt about them. That takes us right into the next episode, which is what you would call a rich young ruler. Now, in a couple of these passages... It says that Jesus met with a young ruler. He came unto him. But in Mark, it, says, it actually says, um, when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running. And that's in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Um, so Mark, Mark explains this a little differently than do the others, but there are three accounts of this rich ruler who comes to Jesus and says, Master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? And this, this exchange is where we get the title for today's lesson, What Lack I Yet? Um, so depending on which account you read, this, this man either asks the questions or Jesus just comes up with answers. But, but I like the one where he says, first he asks the first question, what good thing can I do? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. Now right there, this man has uh, an opportunity to leave the conversation because he knows he's kept the commandments as we learn. So he could have said, great. Jesus, whom I respect, has given me the answer. I'm in compliance with the answer. I can go my way. But he really cares about what Jesus has to say, and he really feels like he wants to grow beyond where he is. So the second thing he says is, you know, which commandments? And Jesus says, um, the, and he gives him a listing. And interestingly enough, this is the cause of some scholarly debate. But Jesus gives him the command, only six of the Ten Commandments, the ones that have to do with how he treats his fellow man and not the ones that have to do with how he treats God. So this is an interesting exchange because, for example, he doesn't say, only worship one God, don't put any other gods before him, make sure you keep the Sabbath day holy. Jesus says, honor your father and mother, don't bear false witness, etc. He uses those six commandments. So it's so interesting because maybe Jesus was saying, well, the question is, what was Jesus saying by that? That those, that those commandments aren't important? Or was he saying this person already has the love of God well in hand, but he doesn't love other, his fellow man enough? Um, that's an interesting question. If you have an answer to that, you can email the show as well. Um, but, regard, but the truth is, uh, I, I don't necessarily know. I'd be interested to hear if anyone has any opinions. But regardless of the answer to that, uh, the man keeps asking questions. He says, look, I've kept all of these. Since I was young, I've kept all of the commandments you just mentioned. So this is the third time he has the, the choice to leave, and he keeps asking Jesus questions. He says, what lack I yet? And much of, has been made of those words. By modern prophets, there is a wonderful talk by Elder Lawrence from uh, 2015 october conference twenty fifteen called what lack I yet and I recommend that talk very much um, The point is that jesus that this that this young man was so motivated to know what was missing in his life he felt that something was missing that he was willing to run to Jesus as Mark reports he came running to jesus so jesus's response is. Um, that is, is what we're going to spend some time studying. He says, "If thou wouldst be perfect, then there one thing only: sell that thou hast, give to the give all to the poor, and come and follow me, and you'll have treasures in heaven." What a wonderful and 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 just inspiring response from Jesus. In other words, I'm inviting you to be like me, to give up everything for the kingdom of heaven and for and for the love of God and of your fellow man. Well, then, it's, then it reports that he that he left, he walked away sorrowing because he had great possessions. And much has been made of all of the aspects of this. We're going to talk a lot about this and just uh, right now. So, um, first thing, then then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Verily I say unto you, it's, be, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, seemingly in response to this event. Um, so, Let's talk about that saying first. It's it's pretty widely told story that there was an ancient gate in Jerusalem that was not tall enough for a camel, a laden camel to walk through. So you had to, if you wanted to get your camel through it, you had to take the loads off the camel and then the camel had to get down on his knees and sort of knee walk, crawl on all fours through this Jerusalem gate in order to enter the city. Uh, it has that little episode that that story has all the elements you would want of a faith promoting story you know it's it's from the mouth of the savior it's got a perfect imagery and it ties everything up in a neat little bow the only problem with it is there's no evidence at all that such a gate really ever existed that this was really what jesus was talking about so let's talk about what there is evidence for what did jesus mean when he said easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle one Popular theory is so the word for a camel is kamilos in Greek, and the word for a rope is camelos. So one one popular theory is that um, Jesus was actually talking about a big thick rope. It's easier for a rope to go through the eye of a needle. In other words, you know you would normally put a thread in, but it's so thick it can't fit. Uh, it's too fat, etc. It's you know this man is spiritually fat. But his heart is made fat as as Isaiah was told in Isaiah chapter six, so this this idea that his riches have kept him from going through the eye of the needle um, so that's what a lot of people think, and that's even present in some ancient manuscripts, the word camelos rather than Camilo, so it's it's actually called a rope in some versions um of the scripture of the New Testament that's that's one way of thinking about it um Otherwise, how do we explain how random the association is? Why would you talk about a camel going through the eye of the needle? This is why people try to explain this. Um, one idea is, there, there, is a, there is a passage in the Midrash, in the, in the Persian Talmud, that talks about uh, one, one rabbi is discussing dreams, and he says dreams don't bring you things that have no connection to reality. For example, a dream wouldn't have a palm made completely of gold, or uh, an elephant passing through the eye of a needle. And the, another uh, exchange has between two uh, rabbis, and one says it's not as if an elephant is passing through the eye of a needle. And the observation has been made that these, these passages are discussing the largest animal they know about and the impossibility that it would be of passing through the smallest opening they know about. So an elephant passing through the eye of a needle, utterly impossible. And in Jerusalem, a camel is the largest animal they know about, so or that, that people would have had direct experience with. And so um, a camel passing through the eye of the needle, the largest animal passing through the smallest opening. Impossible. This idea is supported by the fact that then Jesus uh, goes on to talk about what's possible and impossible. So the, the disciples say, well, how how can a rich man even... What, you know, how can anybody do anything if if no rich man can enter the kingdom of heaven? Like, what are we even striving for? Should we just give up money? Right. Well, what Jesus so and then Jesus says, it seems he seems to be saying if if this is true, if this interpretation is right, um, the. The interpretation of the camel kneeling to go below the gate and having to have his load taken off, it's nice because what it means is you have to take away the riches and then the man can pass through the eye of the quote-unquote needle, this gate in Jerusalem called the needle. Um, but unfortunately, that's not what Jesus is saying. By this interpretation, it's utterly impossible. A rich man cannot go through the, the eye of a needle, therefore, or, or a camel cannot go through the eye of a needle, therefore a rich man cannot enter in the kingdom of God. It's utterly impossible. Um, some light is shed by what we discussed in last week's lesson and that was in uh, Luke 12 verse 21 when the man is dreaming what am I going to do with all of the crops that I'm now reaping I don't have room in my existing barns I know what I'm going to do I'm going to build bigger barns tomorrow and then I'll have a place to put all my stuff and the the parable ends by Jesus saying thou fool don't you know your your soul will be required of you tonight and Thus is the fate of all who are not rich, this is the key phrase, who are not rich toward God. So being rich in this world and not being rich toward God is really the point. So um, Jesus' point seems to be about this young ruler. He wasn't rich toward God in spite of the fact that he had spent his entire life obeying all of these commandments. When the time came, and let's talk, we're going to go back now a little bit and talk about what Jesus invited him to do. When the time came, for him to be truly challenged, he walked away. Now on the surface, this feels like a very sad story because uh, here comes this righteous man, and uh, one account even has Jesus as he's talking to him and the man says he obeys the commandments. Then it says, and Jesus beholding him loved him. And this is when Jesus makes the invitation, if thou wouldst be perfect. So let's talk about the word perfect for a minute. So this is is someone who Jesus loved this is a righteous man, he's spent his whole life, and he comes running to Jesus, and he keeps asking questions when he has the opportunity to be, to be self-satisfied and to leave it alone. He keeps pushing, like, really, how can I change? So he seems to be initially humble, but then when the challenge is truly made and the invitation is extended, he falls short. And that feels like the end of the story. In fact, normally when this is taught, that's the end of the story. This guy fell away, and he never followed Jesus. Uh, so I have a little bit of a different uh, perspective to offer. And we're also going to talk about that word perfect first. So the, the the word for perfect in Greek is teleos, and it means mature or ripe. And it's, it's translated into perfect for much the same reason that the Hebrew uh, word for whole is translated into perfect, because it means something that has been perfected. So it doesn't mean... Um, in the, in the modern sense where it just simply cannot be improved in any small, tiny way. It is absolutely perfect. That's what we mean by perfect. Uh, and what it meant then was something is finished. Um, so if you're building a chair, you put that, you drive in the last nail, you sand off the chair and you varnish the chair, and now it's perfect. So that's, that's the idea of teleos. And so when something is mature, um, this is actually an English word. So the word for perfection is telos, um, obviously related. And we have an English word, teleology, which is the study of things or the, the philosophical inquiry into the nature of things and what they are meant to be. Do things have some uh, uh, an ultimate manifestation? For example, Plato said that the telos, the The end goal of an acorn is to be an oak tree. So something has been perfected when it becomes what it was meant to be. And it presupposes that there's a creator or there's someone whose intent dro- drove what that thing, the state that it was originally in. And Plato didn't have, he wasn't an atheist. He didn't have a hard time with that idea. Um, it, it seemed obvious to people of that time that there was an intent. There was a an intelligent design behind everything they looked at. They may not have believed in the God of the Hebrews, but that didn't mean they didn't think that there, was a, that there was an intent behind things. And in fact, the idea of telos is strongly connected with the belief in God or a belief in a divine creator or a wise creator. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you, want to, if you want to reach your telos, he's not saying if you want to be perfect today. He's saying if you want to move towards your telos, or if you want to be teleos, perfect. If you want to be mature, if you want to be ripe. If you want to take steps that will accomplish what you are meant to become, then here's what you need to do next. So that's an important idea to understand when, when Jesus talks about perfection. It, uh, and you might hear this word used in English now that you're listening for it. I hear it every so often. That that is your telos, that is your purpose. That is what you were meant to do. And that's, that's closely tied in with the New Testament ideal of perfection. So the next thing that happens is, this young man, um, he walks away sorrowing. And this is where I'd like to end talking about this episode, is in saying that we simply don't know what happens next, except that, we, that there's a little clue that's given in the narrative, which is, he walked away sorrowing, for he had great possessions. And so my question is this, you know, often when we, um, when we read something and we're hearing about the storyteller, the author is trying to give us some suspense about how the story turns out. Like, and, but the story, the problem is the story is told in the first person. So, you know, I was in a lot of danger and my enemies were surrounding me on every side, you know, maybe it's an action story. How do you know that the, the, the main character survived? You already know that you're reading it because it's told in the first person. And you know that the person survives, so no matter what happens, you're not really that worried because obviously this person had to survive and get somewhere else in order to write down the story that you're reading. Now, this, there are some authors who have uh, played with this trope a little bit in order, and, 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 uh, and had a dead body write the story, for example, or whatever, but that's not my point. My point is there's a little giveaway in the way this is told, as to another conclusion we can reach. The fact that we know that this young man walked away sorrowing, and the fact that we know that he had great possessions, he didn't have time to report that to anybody when he ran up to Jesus. And he didn't say to Jesus, look, I'm a rich man, how can I get to heaven? What he said was, what good thing can I do to inherit an eternal life? So the inference we can draw, and maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but it's, it's something to think about, um, is that at some point, the author of, these, of each of these three Gospels had contact with this person or with somebody who knew him. And that would presuppose, I mean, what was their purpose? Their purpose was to compile stories of Jesus. That would, that would presuppose that he was known to a community of Jesus believers who could have said, yeah, that was the guy that Jesus taught about uh, selling all he had to the poor. He was wealthy. He was really sad that day, by the way. And the reason he was sad was because he had great possessions. Now, why would such a person be known to a community of believers? One answer is that he became a believer and he told this story about his own life. And he said, Jesus one day invited me to do this and I walked away sorrowing. Now, this is con- to me, it's consistent with the way the story is written um, obviously, you know, one objection to that take would be, well, why didn't the evangelists, why didn't they write that this man later uh, converted and became a follower of Jesus? That would violate the the linear nature of this narrative to jump forward in time and then to jump back. The way this is generally told is if somebody changes later, they come back to them later. And it would have interrupted the the narrative flow. And even though they didn't have words for those things back then, um, they do respect them very much. I mean, this is quite the Gospels are are quite sophisticated in their literary techniques, as as we've mentioned on a few occasions, and this is no exception. So I don't find it to be inconsistent that they wouldn't jump forward and say, even if the evangelist knew that this man had had a change of heart, that they wouldn't jump forward and say what happened to him, how it was eventually resolved. And secondly, they mean just simply not have known. But they may have come across this uh, information because some believer knew it, and that would be because that this man had eventually become a believer. Secondly, I look at my own life. And I see that there are times and I'll give an example um, of political discussions. You know, I consider myself to be a, a political person at times, and, and I'm also um, I can be prideful. And there are times when I'm in a political discussion and somebody simply just has my number and I am not as informed as this person. And so they tell me, um, you know, here's where you're wrong. Factually, your opinion just doesn't add up. It is very rare for me. I'm ashamed to admit that I would say in that moment, you know what? You're right. I changed my mind. You have totally defeated all my arguments. Uh, I can no longer resist you on this idea. I have to change my opinion. And now I have your opinion. I I can't think of a single time in my life when I've ever said that. Instead, what ends up happening for me is, but I have been wrong plenty of times in my life. So what happens for me is I think about that and I think, man, that's got to be wrong. You know, my opinion is this. And I go away and I think about it and I fume about it because my pride is involved. But then obviously I want to I wanna be true to the facts and I can't ignore the fact that my arguments have all been defeated. And so then I research it and I look at it. And over time, as my pride in the situation gets less and less, I'm able to look at it objectively. And then finally I say, you know what? I was wrong. I do need to change my opinion. The facts are opposite of what I thought. And that this has happened to me on a number of occasions where I've changed my opinion because uh, someone has given me better information. And the same thing is true with being called to repentance. I mean, it would be very rare for somebody to say, okay, Jesus, you've told, you've told me something that requires me to upend my entire value system and change all of my priorities because I've been working my whole life to be rich and I've been taught that spiritually it's a reflection of my blessings if, if temporally I can show that I'm well off. And so I have thought that God wants me to be rich. I certainly want to be rich. And so therefore, you're, I'm not able to react quickly to you telling me that I shouldn't want to be, not only should I not be rich, but I should not want to be rich. That hurts. That's threatening. That is changing my entire identity. I cannot internalize that instantly. And so he went away sorrowing. It seems totally natural. And this is, this is my point that I'm getting to it with this entire uh, line of questioning, and it's this. We, each of us, this is this is such a wonderful metaphor for our lives. We, each of us, are invited by Jesus into our telos, whatever it might be. Not all of us would be invited to give up. I think it's clear when Jesus says it's impossible for a rich man to uh, enter the kingdom of God. He's not speaking factually there. He's He's speaking metaphorically because it's certainly possible. It is absolutely possible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus knows that. He's not going to say something like that unless he has another meaning. So it's, there's a metaphorical meaning to what he's saying. And uh, when Jesus invites us into our telos, we walk away sorrowing. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, anybody who doesn't is already deserving of a celestial glory and might as well be translated. The, the normal response is for us to say, wow, wow. You know, the things of this world are really important to me. This invitation hurts. And my initial reaction is to walk away sorrowing. But here's the thing. Amulek said it best. The time of this life is the time to prepare to meet God. And after the day of this life is when the darkness comes wherein can be no labor performed. Now, we usually take that to be a negative thing. Like, man, the judgment is coming and that day's the cutoff. But it's actually really good news. It means we're still alive. And we have all of this time, we have all of the time of our life to learn to turn around and respond to Jesus' invitation. Even though he's now gone, he's, he was on the road and we ran to him and he invited us into our telos and we refused the invitation. But Amulek's point in the Book of Mormon was um, that it's never too late for us to change our minds and then go and receive Jesus' invitation and truly work on changing. And so to me, this this feels like a story of hope. And it's also left unanswered. And so therefore, you know, if if the gospel had gone to the point where they conclude the story and they say, here's how it ended up with this guy, then the story would have been told in past tense and we would know what had happened. But the story leaves it in present tense. He leaves sorrowing. We don't know what happens. This man exists in the same state you and I exist in, that of uncertainty. He's still alive For me, as I read this story, he still has a chance to repent. He still has the opportunity to turn around and say, it is important to me to be teleos, to be perfect, to be finished, to have the master's hand work upon me and create of me what I was meant to become. And it's too much for me right now. But tomorrow it might not be. Tomorrow there is some part of it that I can allow to happen. And that's the hope of this story. It's, a, it's actually a wonderful story because it's unfinished, because you and I are unfinished. So all of us are this wealthy man who was invited to change and was unable to do it. Because I don't, I don't think there's anyone listening who has not found themselves in that position. They've been invited by Jesus, by the Spirit of God, by somewhere at church or by some circumstance of life to move into their telos and have found themselves unable to do so and have made a different choice. And now you're listening to this podcast, you're obviously trying to follow Jesus. The point is you are still asking those questions, what lack I yet? I, I I was once invited into my telos and I fell short, but today I'm I'm here again. It's not too late. The this life is it's the day, it's still the day of this life wherein I can perform my labors and it's not too late for me to reach my telos. So that brings us to the parallel between the little children and this, and this wealthy ruler. The little children were unquestionably not mature. They were as far from their telos as they could get their babies. They're not even grown people, let alone grown disciples of Christ or exalted beings. And yet Jesus loves them so much that he was willing to rebuke his, his favored disciples that they wouldn't let them come unto him. And so this is, these, these two events are connected in time and so we should see them connected thematically as well. Jesus is saying, I don't care, or he seems to be saying, and the evangelists seem to be saying, I don't care where you are on your path to your telos. I love you where you're at. I love you at the beginning, and I love you in the middle when you're struggling with it. And obviously, I'm going to love you at the end. That part's easy. But the, the message here is continuous through, the story, through, through these two episodes, which is, I love you at the beginning of your telos, and I love you along the way. I love you at the start of your road, and I love you on the road. So often we forget that, that Jesus loves us. Jesus beholding this man. Jesus knew how this exchange was going to end, that this man was going to leave sorrowing, but he also loved him enough to invite him into his telos. And he loves all of us enough that he's never going to stop reaching out and inviting us into our telos. Then the disciples, you know, they hear about, um, so that's, that's the end of that message, and I hope, uh, I hope that stays with you. I know it's staying with me as I think about it. Um, but the disciples, they hear about what happens with wealthy individuals, and they, they ask Jesus, well, we've given up all this stuff, so what do we get? This is an, this is an interesting exchange as well. I actually remember my mission president. Um, he was a, an emergency mission president. He was called on a mission. Mission presidents usually start in the summer, and he was called, I think, with three weeks before his uh, before his start date. And earlier that year, he'd been given a prompting that he was gonna be called on a mission with his family and that he should get his affairs in order. And thankfully he did. He renewed his passports, got all his kids' paperwork ready. Um, but he had a home. He had a home when he was called on his mission. He didn't have time to sell it and perhaps he didn't have the desire to sell it. And what he did was, he threw the keys to the missionaries. And he said, missionaries, he's a Brazilian, wasn't a wealthy man. He said, missionaries, you can live in my home until I get back. And he said, look, I'm here on a mission. I've been out uh, a year and a half. I've still got a year and a half to go. I know my home's going to be destroyed when I get home. And his point was this. He pointed to the scriptures and he said, and, and, in, and in Portuguese, um, the words are translated would be translated into English, a hundred times more. Jesus says a hundredfold. He says, I know I'm going to go home and I'm going to get a hundred times more. So why wouldn't I give that up? And uh, I thought that was a wonderful attitude. So the first thing the disciples are asking in this situation is, um, they're asking Jesus, how can we be the most important? Like James and John are saying, Jesus, can we sit on your right hand and on your left? The other disciples are grumbling about this. And Jesus says, you know, they're, that's not mine to give. I mean, you can, you can follow me in my sufferings and my trials. And then he says, look, guys, the, the other disciples are grumbling. Oh, these guys seem to be gaining favor with Jesus. And Jesus says, look, guys, you've got this all wrong. When you look around at the way human societies are arranged, it's the leader who has everybody serve him. But you are in a different sort of enterprise here with me. And in case you haven't noticed by the way that I act, let me spell it out for you. If, in, if one of you wants to be chief, you have to serve everyone else. The higher up you go in this organization, the more people you have that you are serving and giving yourself up for, the less important you become to yourself and to others around you. The less you have to brag about, the more you recognize how your dependence on God. All of these things are backwards and upside down. So instead of a pyramid where the ruler's at the top, this is a pyramid where the ruler's at the bottom. And I'm bearing the weight of all. So... You'll learn that very soon. I know you don't understand it yet, but get with the program because this is the way the gospel works. And then he talks about, but then, so interestingly enough, he upbraids them, he rebukes them for that kind of pride that would seek to be higher than another of their fellows. But he doesn't rebuke them for asking the question, hey, what do we get out of all of this? We're obeying the commandments. Um, isn't there some sort of reward that we should receive? And Jesus doesn't say, Why are you in this for the reward? So I think that's interesting to think about. Um, he he instead he answers the question. He says, as if it's a perfectly legitimate question and if it's and as if the answer is going to be helpful to his disciples. so i don't I don't think there's actually anything wrong with us wanting to know what's in it for us in obeying the gospel. Like we do need to have hope that there's a reward. In fact, later, in the book, book of Galatians, I believe, it says, in order to, in order to please God, we have to, we have to have faith in him, we have to trust in him, and we have to know that he's the rewarder of those that obey his will. And so, counting on a reward from God is not a bad thing. And wanting God to reward us, perhaps temporally, but certainly spiritually, is a wonderful thing. But even temporally, Jesus says you'll receive 100 times more, you'll receive 100-fold, or many-fold, depending on which of the Gospels you read it in, uh, of things in this life. And, um, it, you know, is that to be taken literally? I think there have been plenty of cases where people have given up things and not received a hundred-fold of that exact thing before they die. Nevertheless, um, I think it's, we ignore the, the promises of Jesus at our peril and so, I do believe that we can count on the promises of Jesus and take them to the bank in fact, and um, really believe in them and pray for them to come to pass and It's okay for us to want to be rewarded from God, speaking of reward, Jesus then follows this with the with the uh the parable of the laborers in the vineyard and in in brief, this parable is just uh, a certain man goes out, and you can imagine, I mean, to me, this feels exactly like somebody driving to Home Depot, and there are a lot of day, day laborers out there in the parking lot. So a certain man goes into the marketplace, and there are people there who want work, and he says, come work re- with me for the day. So uh, the man is going back and forth to Home Depot all day, every day, or all day this day, and... Um, he says he agrees with them for a penny now, when you read penny in the Gospels, think of a denarius we've talked a little bit when the when we did the parable of the talents or the uh the what what a talent is and the uh the parable of the unjust servant right who had a ten thousand talent debt and he uh went and and beat one of his fellow servants for a hundred pennies right a hundred denarius and so that remember that this is um pretty much the the wage of a roman soldier for a day or maybe a a little less than a day so it's a fair amount of money it's not going to make or break your life but it's going to feel really good for a day laborer to make that much money in one day so it's a really good wage and he says to all these people he finds first thing in the morning he says look i've got a full day's work to do come and work for me and i'll give you a penny and they're all happy to get it so he takes him back sets him to work he says man i still don't have enough laborers go back he goes back Goes back a bunch of times, in fact, and then at one point he goes back an hour before the sun's gonna go down. So there's 12 hours worth of work and he goes at the 11th hour, finds more laborers and brings them back. He says, at the end, he doesn't agree with them for a certain amount of money. He just says, I'll pay you whatever's fair. Well, the day comes and it's interesting that he pays the people who got there last. He pays them first. And he says, here's your wage. And it's a penny, it's a denarius. And they're, they're overwhelmed. They're like, wow. How could I get paid a whole denarius for working one hour? And then the people, so then the people who start in the morning, they're thinking, okay, he's going to increase our wages because we've been working the whole day. I know he agreed with us for one denarius, but uh, obviously if these guys are getting one, we're going to get more. But then it comes their turn to get paid and they get one denarius and they start complaining. So here's the lesson, right? They're complaining. This is the entire lesson. Their agreement was to get a denarius. They were really happy about that amount until somebody else got that amount for doing less. Then all of a sudden, they're sad about it. So again, we're having the comparison. What Jesus is saying, when you compare yourself to what somebody else is getting, this is going to be the root of unhappiness for you. You are totally happy with this wage. The wage is eternal life. And so we're meant to put ourselves in this position and see, that if we compare ourselves to each other, we're not going to be happy, even with eternal life. And to me, there's a deeper lesson here. Um, when Jesus gave the parable of the, the, the lost sheep, and he said, um, who, what shepherd, when he gets back to the pasture, he counts his sheep, he discovers, I've only got 99 out of 100 sheep. So what shepherd is not going to leave those 99 sheep in the corral and go out and search for the lost sheep until he finds it? No shepherd. They're all going to go out and search for it, and the 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 point of the lesson was, you know, to these to these Pharisees who considered themselves to be righteous followers of Yahweh. He was saying, they thought he was saying, um, look, you should be merciful to the lost sheep because even though you're one of the ninety and nine, you know, that lost sheep is also precious. Well, that's actually sort of a prideful way to take that. It's it's the surface level. It's it's good learning but it's not really the deep learning that's contained in the parable. The deep learning of the parable is you are the lost sheep. Every person, there is no 90 and 9. You will be the lost sheep when God finds you and brings you back. And if he doesn't bring you back, you'll stay lost. You you didn't just every time go back to the, to the corral. You have been the lost sheep. And so if you think that the lost sheep doesn't deserve to be sought after, then you yourself are lost forever. That's the deeper learning in the parable. So here we are looking at this parable of the laborers in the vineyard, and we're thinking of ourselves, like especially if, like me, you were born in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and you think, okay, this is a lesson for people born in the church to look at converts and to recognize that we all deserve the same blessings and the same celestial kingdom, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That so that's the surface learning. It's not bad learning, but it is not the deep, deeper learning of this parable. The deeper learning of this parable is we are all the 11th hour laborers. There is something that each of us has missed throughout our lives. We've been invited by Christ into our telos and we have failed to follow that invitation until the 11th hour, every one of us. And so what Jesus is saying is you have to have mercy towards each other and you have to be satisfied. You can't compare yourselves with any other laborers in the vineyard or you, or you will not be satisfied with eternal life. Eternal life is the kind of blessing that simply cannot be looked at with comparison in relation to others. Now I don't mind you asking what's in it for me, but what I do mind is when you start saying, Can I get more than my neighbor? Can I somehow come out ahead of ahead of the game for my neighbor? This is the same concept that governs the law of forgiveness, because if we the The very thing that keeps us from being forgiven when we don't forgive is, can I get a better atonement than my neighbor? Can I get one that allows me to be forgiven without actually allowing him to be forgiven? And the answer is no. As soon as we start comparing, as soon as we start trying to make some sort of strata where we exist on a higher plane than anyone else, then God says the gospel is not for you. You don't understand how the kingdom works. You have misunderstood all of the messages I've taught you. That is not the kind of God that I am. This is so central to Jesus' message about the kingdom. So Jesus is um, walking and teaching as he goes from village to village. Uh, Some of this occurs in Bethany beyond Jordan, right? This this place right across the Jordan River, near where Jesus was baptized, near Jericho. And then he's making his way to Jerusalem. So as he's walking, he's telling his disciples, look... um, the Son of Man is now heading to uh, be betrayed and killed, and he, they shall do with him whatever they please, whatever they list, and then on the third day he shall rise again. The, the evangelists are all writing about these prophecies with the benefit of hindsight, and they're saying, you know, at the time, especially John is saying, at the time we just did not understand what he was saying. Um, it's worth noting that all three synoptic gosp- Gospels use the title Son of Man to talk about uh, the way that Jesus calls himself. This was Jesus's favorite title for himself. And in case you haven't been um, listening or or in case you haven't noticed over the last few weeks, I've mentioned several times, this is a title that comes originally from Daniel chapter 7. If you haven't taken the opportunity to read that chapter, uh, you don't need to read the whole chapter. I mean, the, the point is that it's a chapter about a dream of Daniel in which the governments of the world are these beasts that come out and trample and mistreat man. And this is the—it's a, it's a dream about the fallen, it's an allegory about the fallen nature of the world and what men do when left to their own devices, what fallen man is really like. But then the son of man, which in the Old Testament language just simply means a son of Adam or someone in the image of a man, someone who looks like a man who would not be special to look at. That's what a son of man means. Mortal man, it's often translated. So a mortal man comes, and all of a sudden this mortal man is trampled, though he's trampled by one of the beasts, then all of a sudden all judgment is given into his hand, and God raises him up alongside him, and he rules forever, which is me- messianic language. And uh, th- so... I invite you to read at least the passage that deals with the Son of Man, the title, the Son of Man, and understand that this is the title that Jesus is claiming for himself. And he's putting himself into a story that is very familiar to his listeners by calling himself the Son of Man. He's saying, I'm going to be trampled and I'm going to be lifted up alongside of God and all judgment will be put into my hand and I will be reigning forever. That's what the title, the Son of Man, means. Uh, it doesn't just mean that Jesus was a mortal man. He was born of Mary, and he was also the Son of God, born of God. It's very, it's very specifically evoking uh, this apocalyptic prophecy from Daniel. Um, so that's, what, that's one thing we can get from Jesus prophesying his betrayal and um, crucifixion and resurrection. The other thing is, uh, it's worth noting, Jesus knew what was coming. I mean, that's, that's not a little fact. Um, there's a little bit of chronological interplay between last week's lesson and this week's lesson. So some of the events that we're talking about now had to have occurred before. Uh, we've already talked about the raising of Lazarus, Lazarus. And some of the things we talk about this week had to have occurred before the raising of Lazarus. Some of them might have occurred after. Um, but this is right around the same time. So Jesus... One of his final acts was to raise Lazarus from the dead, and that was when the chief priests of, of Jerusalem conceived their absolute, they, they distilled their intention to kill Jesus rather than let the status quo just, you know, hopefully Jesus will go away, or hopefully uh, this will die down, um, maybe we won't have to kill him. They finally said, no, we're, we are absolutely going to bend all of our efforts into finding somebody to betray Jesus to us so that we can have him killed by the Romans. We have to do it. Um, so that cemented their drive, the, the raising of Lazarus, and this is right around that time. So as Jesus moves from, and it even, and it even talks about in the book of John how Jesus moved from Jericho to Bethany, so which, is a, which is a westward journey up, uphill, um, from Jericho up this, this well-known r- route that would have traveled um, an ancient waterway and up to Jerusalem and then a little bit past it to Jericho, or uh, uh, sorry, a little bit short of Jerusalem to Bethany and uh, about two miles from, from Jerusalem only, which is where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. So that was the journey that Jesus went on. And there are certain parts of this week's lesson that occur on either end of that journey. Now, a very a very common theme that comes up in this lesson, uh, but but all the time in the Gospels. And I, and I think it's worth mentioning again, because it came up probably three times in this lesson, which is, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Um, this is such a powerful motif. And I say motif because it has so many different manifestations. They're similar, but not the same. Um, Sometimes it means, and, and and I think Jesus means it in all of its ways every time he uses it, but sometimes it means specifically, um, those of you who think that you're righteous, you are the, you are the first right now, but you will one day be the last. This idea is expressed expertly in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Uh, you know it well, the Pharisee goes into church. And he says he says his prayer, you know, I'm grateful, God, that I'm a righteous man. I fast twice in the week. I tithe of all that I possess. He's obeying every commandment. He thinks that he is right with God. And the publican comes in. Now, this publican is hated. He's a collaborator with the Romans. And he is outcast among his fellows. He has to hide in the back of church he will not even lift so much as lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beats his hand on his chest and he says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, this second man is the one who's justified rather than the first. It's not your, it's not your obedience. The, the lesson to me is it's not your obedience that takes you into the kingdom of heaven. It, and so obviously it's God's grace and it is your attitude that qualifies you for God's grace. If you can't admit that you are utterly dependent on it, then you cannot receive it. It's so important for us to remember that. But even more than that, um, Jesus is saying these first people—the people who have this attitude of "I'm obedient" or "I'm good" or "I'm I'm blessed" of the things of the world—I'm rich, perhaps—those um, are the first people, and they're going to be last. And the last people, this guy in the back of the chapel, who's or in the back of the synagogue, who's beating his hand on his chest, he's a publican, he's an outcast, he's hated, he's the last, he's going to be first in the kingdom of heaven. He's going to be allowed in before the others. Um, And Jesus has expressed this idea in so many different ways. Another, Another way, another idea that this supports is, so you Jews, you children of Israel, you Israelites, you descendants of Jacob, you're the first ones to receive the gospel. And that's important because my plan of salvation, my plan for the earth and for the history of the earth included having you be an example, a light unto the nations. And eventually the time will come when you failed in that task. So you're first now, but, and, the, and the Gentiles are the last. You know, Eventually they'll receive the gospel. But the time will come when they will receive, they will have the right attitude and therefore, they'll be allowed first into the new Jerusalem that will come in the day of the Messiah. And then the descendants of, of Jacob, who could not receive their Messiah when he came not in power, they will also be allowed to come in, but they'll be last. This, this Those are just two of the examples, and they have a, a variety of shades of meaning as the Gospels unfold. I just invite you to continuously watch for that because it's such a common motif through, the, through all of the Gospels, and it's always powerful. And um, there's always something new. There's some new aspect that we can learn by paying attention to what Jesus means by the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Um, Jesus is walking, so he begins his walking journey from, from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And along the road, uh, some, some of the, one of the Gospels has two blind men, others have one. But blind, a blind man or blind men call after Jesus and say, um, you know, thou son of David, this is the title they use. Now, son of David is very specifically saying, I know you're the Messiah. You are a son of David, you are the heir of David, you are the royal person that all of the Old Testament prophets said would come after David and, and fulfill the Davidic covenant where one of the David's sons would be also a son of God, God will treat him as his son. If you read the Davidic Covenant, God said, "You will have a son, I will treat I will He will be to me as my son, and his kingdom will never die." And this, this idea was expanded upon by all the prophets until finally uh, there was one figure about whom all of the hopes of Israel resided in their Messiah, seen as an earthly king. These blind men, when they find out it's Jesus of Nazareth, they call after him and they, and they it's not ambiguous what they're saying. they're saying, Messiah, Messiah. Um, we, I know you're the ruler, you're the prophesied ruler of Israel, have mercy on me. Now, Jesus's response to these blind men is a little new and it's worth noting because what has he done in the past? He's always told people, you know, keep that look, let's keep this under the hat. Or he says, look, you're calling the Messiah. That's what, those aren't my words. He has been reluctant to claim the title. Because he knows it puts him in danger, it will end his mortal ministry sooner than he was ready. And what happens in this instance? Jesus says, no. The other men are again, we again we have the, the idea, the theme of people refusing access to Jesus. And this is an this is such an important idea. So we're going to spend a little time talking about it. But the disciples are saying, look, calm yourselves, quiet yourselves. And Jesus says, No, let them come unto me. He accepts what they're calling him. He accepts the title. Uh, Jesus is not a liar, okay? He has never misled anyone. And so for him to say, yes, I will heal you and accept them calling him the Messiah is, him, is the equivalent of Jesus boldly proclaiming his identity, saying to everyone who heard that, yes, I am the Messiah. I fully and publicly acknowledge it. And then healing the blindness and, and showing everyone, I'm not just the Messiah, but I'm also a prophet. So Jesus, and, and then finally, when he has done healing in the past, he said, See thou makest it known to no know man, etc. Like, don't hide this. Or, or, I'm sorry, don't make this known. Hide what has happened, because my time has not yet come. And the fact that he doesn't do that now, he publicly heals them, and he never says anything about not making it known. He wants them to make it known. He wants to be publicly proclaimed as the Messiah. He's on his way to Jerusalem, as we'll learn next week. It is, it is widely believed that he's the Messiah to such extent that people are willing to publicly proclaim him their king in the streets. He was a huge sensation in, in Jerusalem and in Judea. And everyone, not everyone, huge crowds of people believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And it wasn't actually blasphemous to proclaim yourself the Messiah, by the way. Um, but uh, so Jesus accepted the title and he no longer says my time has not yet come. There, he has nothing more to lose by people accepting him as the Messiah because the, the chief priests are about to or have already decided to kill him. So Jesus now says, he's, he's saying basically, yes, I am the Messiah and my time has come. He has proclaimed to his disciples that he knows the Son of Man will be betrayed, will be killed, will be lifted up, and on the third day shall rise again. So he he has now come fully into his own. He's willing to accept his place as the rightful ruler of all of the Jewish people and as their God and Savior, as their healer, and he, he no longer has to hide any of it. He's openly admitting it and proudly proclaiming it. And we'll see more evidence of that next week as we discuss the triumphal entry. Finally, uh, let's talk about the parable of the unjust judge. So um, this is a simple, such a simple parable, and it's a woman who has been wronged in her daily life, and she needs a judgment from a judge, and she's, she's calling into this judge for justice, and she keeps bothering and keeps showing up. And finally, the judge says to himself, Look, I don't respect God, and I don't respect man, uh, but this woman, you know, in le- the only way for me to get her off of my back is to give her some justice, so I'm going to do it. And Jesus' point is, this is how you should pray. This is how you should treat God. It's such an interesting parable, because he likens God to somebody who's unjust, who has totally selfish motives. But the point is well taken, and the the way that I see it is this. We we think and I, well, I shouldn't say we. I imagine that many of you feel like I do. Which is that so often I think God is going to do what he's going to do with my life. And sometimes I feel like there's no point in me striving for the things that I really want, that I really wish that God would do. I wish that God would show up in this way in my life and in this way in my life, but he's not doing it. So obviously he has other ideas and I'm just going to let him have my way with me. It's, it's such a defeatist mentality. It, it, it's, it's us basically saying, God doesn't truly care about me at all. And what Jesus is saying in this parable is this. He's saying, you have the right to ask God for what you want and to insist. Now, he says in other places, look, pray according to the will of God. He says in other places, be humble to the will of God. But in this place, he's saying, you have the right to insist on your will. What I read from this is is the following. Jesus is telling us very clearly, we are meant to be creators. That is our telos. We are invited into that telos. And it may be that we don't know how to do it yet. It may be that God is not going to listen to some of our prayers. But God fully intends for us not to be just creators at the end of a Uh, of an eternity long process where he perfects us and molds us and and finally trusts us. He means for us to start now. He means for us to start during the day of this life. While it's not too late for us to perform our labors, he means for us to begin now in co-creating our life with him. He trusts us now with the power to ask him for help, to put our attitudes into the right place. And just like this rich young ruler whose story has not yet been completely told. Our story has not yet been completely told. Our lives are not yet created. We are in the process of creating our lives every day. And and Jesus invites us, involve yourself in that process. Don't just hand it over to God. And also, involve God in that process. Don't just assume that you have it all yourself. You and God are co-creators. And That is your telos. That is your purpose, is to be a creator. There is no doubt it is so unambiguous. In these passages and others in the scriptures, Jesus is telling us, you are meant to create with me. If nothing else, you're meant to create your life and yourself, your spirit, your soul. You are meant to make yourself in the image of me the way I have done. I first made you in the image of me, and now it's your turn. You get to choose. The first, your first act as creator is to create yourself in my image. And I pray we'll do that. Our story is not yet told. We still live in the present tense. It's not the past tense. We have hope. We have a wonderful opportunity to turn ourselves into everything that God wants us to be. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.